Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined as ever by commissioning editor, lover of cheese, beer and correct pronunciation, Thea Leonard-Dutzi. Hello, Thea. <laughs> and are you, in a, are you happy? Yeah, I was just, um, that makes me sound like a, a gouty extra on My Fair Lady. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you're not gouty. I am not gouty. I People who haven't met you, I really I, should say that I you... I do you, not have gout. What's the op- <laughs> you're the opposite of gouty, I think, Thea. Uh, <laughs> coming up on, yeah, nearly a compliment there. Coming up on the show this week, Frances Wilson will introduce us to an interesting woman from 18th century Scotland who wrote a ballad loved by Walter Scott and Thomas Hardy, among others. We'll also be considering what Shakespeare's views on death, that undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, can teach the modern world. The doctor, Michael Keynes, will report from a conference into the subject at the Globe Theatre and join Thea and me in the studio, who will then move ground to a country now often associated with death and violence, Mexico. Scott Esposito has looked at some journalism, photography and fiction that together provide rather a bleak perspective. Finally, we shall hear some new and rare poetry from the critic Barbara Everett. So first, the life of Lady Anne Barnard, who, according to Anthony Pole, is perhaps less well-known than she deserves. Well, Frances Wilson has tried to right that wrong by reviewing Defiance, The Life and Choices of Lady Anne Barnard by Stephen Taylor, which tells the story of this fascinating woman whose claim to fame largely rests on the Scots ballad Old Robin Grey, which she wrote when she was 21. Here's a short clip of it set to music by the Scottish violinist Hector MacAndrew. Uh, The ballad tells the tale of a woman who believes her sweetheart Jamie to have died at sea and marries an old rich man called Robin Gray, who provides for her and her impoverished family. Of course, Jamie is not dead, and he returns to find his love trapped in a marriage from which she cannot escape. Lady Anne's life was no less filled with romantic scrapes and aches, and this is indicative of that. She dictated her memoirs to the mixed-race daughter of her dead husband and one of his mistresses. (laughs) And these memoirs form the bedrock of the new book. Francis, as I say, joins Thea and me in the studio now. It's such an interesting story, Francis, and a a lovely review. Perhaps you might give us the bones of the story of Lady Anne to begin with. She was born in 1750. She was the eldest of 11 children. This is all very important. She was, um, her father was 60 when she was born and her mother was 21. Mm. And I think you can feel this in the ballad of Robin Gray, sorry, in, in old Robin Gray, where, uh, where she describes having to marry sort of this old man and give up on her young love. A sort of gouty old man. The, opposite, gouty old the opposite man of fear. Does, yes. <laughs> and she started her life in a Spartan monastic sort of castle, I guess. It's not quite a castle. It's sitting above the Firth of Firth of Forth in Scotland. 16th century ancestral hall. Um, She described it as a prison. It was also like living on an island and being a castaway. Her mother seems to be absolutely vicious. (laughs) Incredibly um, strict and controlling and joyless woman. And I don't think she's given nearly enough sympathy by Stephen Taylor in this book because evidently she didn't want to marry this man. No, age 21, she didn't want to marry this 16-year-old man. This is the mother, yeah. Yes. um, So this is a 
of the, the strange upbringing Anne Bernard, Anne Bernard had. She had a, a mother who married reluctantly, evidently to save the family fortunes. It's the story of Robin Gray. Anne, Anne Barnard's life, though, that was, that was quite different. I mean, she sort of rebelled against that, that narrative. Everything she did was to rebel against that narrative. Mm. So she watched a mother get married age 21 to a 60-year-old man and have uh, 11 children, and I imagine there were other pregnancies that didn't um, come to fruition and realised that this was not for her. And so the first half of her life, first half of her life, she wasn't Anne Bernard at all. She was Anne Lindsay. She didn't marry until she was 43. And the first half of this book is spent describing how many courtships she had and quite how many men... She let down. She had twenty relationships. And these are are these sort of sexual relationships? Do we can, presumably not in the time, no. or do we know? Mm, I don't know. I well, mean, she I, did. She did get wrapped up in a carpet. There's, there's the carpet she? story. Yeah, <laughs> I thought I might read that out. Yeah, go on. That's like, lovely. Yeah. yeah, this is um. Let's go straight to the let's go straight to the carpet <laughs> story, shall we? This is from this is from a letter that was written at the time by a witness of the scene who was completely ex- astonished by it. So this is um, Lady Anne spending a kind of um, a weekend in a weekend in a country house and kind of um, with, um, with a group of other young aristocrats. And this girl writes a letter home. She said it would take up a sheet of paper to tell you the whole of it. But the short of the story is that one day after dinner, Lady Anne contrived to stay in the room with my brother and Mr Hampton after the other ladies had left it. At last, it came to their being both on the ground, and Mr Hampton rolled them up in the carpet, put out the candles, and sat by the fire drinking his wine. And in half an hour, he heard Lady Anne say, For shame, my lord, how dare you do so! (laughs) Upon which Mr Hampton undid the carpet, and they both retired to put their dresses to rights. You can do an awful lot in half an hour while wrapped in carpet, can't you? It's quite extraordinary. I've never heard of anyone being wrapped in a carpet before at that. <laughs> so this is a, so, so there's a because you actually you make an interesting point that men seem to love her, and it's no coincidence in your view that yeah. a man is her first biographer. I was very struck by the fact that this book's written by a man because I'm quite wary of this kind of biography, to be honest. And when I first received it, I thought, oh, Lord, I've read into this genre so deeply. What more can there be to dredge out of the aristocratic woman's story? Because it seems that for the past 20 years, since Amanda Foreman's Georgina, Duchess of Devonshire, there's been a, um, there's been a deluge yeah, of kind of lush lives of posh women who supposedly were incredibly unconventional, but the unconventional thing they did was to, you know, repaper their drawing room in a kind of, you know, in an unusual shade of orange that wasn't in fashion or something. And um, so there have been so many of these books, and I seem to have reviewed them all. Like, I can't cope with anyone. But this one's by a man. How extraordinary. And then I realised it's a very different story altogether. And I was struck by his being written by a man. I thought, why would a man turn to Lady Anne Bernard? She's such a kind of a, a sexualised genre, if yeah, you like. Yeah, how interesting. And, um, but um, she's a man's woman. And, and Men she... adore her. Men still adore her. She's also a woman's woman, a bad girl's woman, specifically, ba- you say. Well, she had these racy friends. I mean, she was she was very good friends with uh, Mariah Fitzherbert, in fact, she, uh, who, who uh, secretly married the Prince Regent. And it was uh, it was Lady Anne who introduced... Mrs. Fitzherbert to the Prince Regent, and then she became she was the confidant and the go-between in that relationship. And and at one point she went away. She did a kind of tour of the continent for eleven months with Mrs. Fitzherbert when she was deciding whether or not she should secretly marry the prince. And so no bad girls gravitated. Mary Wollstonecraft being one of them, I suppose you could say. I mean that that's quite an obvious parallel, perhaps. But and and certainly Lady Anne's output was was less. The yes. was less. She was less published, and and so on. But well, I we don't know very much about her output here, and I don't. I think that's kind of it's missing in the book, and I think it's missing in the book because it's 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 missing in the world. But um, what we do know, obviously, is the is uh, the ballad which made her famous at the end of her life. She didn't admit that she had written it until it was revealed by Sir Walter Scott. And I, she and she wrote it when she was twenty one. She wrote it when she was twenty one. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And all and, the, all the great all you know William Wordsworth Hazlitt everybody loved it everyone was singing her praise the praises of the author the praises of the author and, and yet she she remained anonymous That's well it, this anonymity was very much a thing I mean mm. Jane Austen her contemporary wrote anonymously and um, Wordsworth her contemporary also wrote anonymously and so did Walter Scott mm. so it, she wasn't sort of especially modest in writing anonymously but I do th- well Stephen Taylor makes a makes a case that 
you know, that she didn't want to, that she was complex about her, um, her writing and didn't want to put it, didn't want to put it forward to the point of saying that she didn't want anyone to read her, uh, her memoirs or anyone to read her poetry. So she destroyed the poetry. So there's no evidence of it. Oh, so we just, so is there? A, there may not be a cache of it. Any we don't. We, there may not be because the, the, the book you say refers to her better verse, but we don't quite know what what Stephen uh, Taylor means by that. No, no idea. I mean, just thought if she'd written something as good as Robin Gray, there must be. I mean, there must be more ballads there. At twenty-one as well. At the beginning of her life. Yes. Um, Vol- volume. Sorry, volumes of her memoir do survive though, and they're kept in the old family yes. home, and they're quite a, a bold work. It sounds. Yes. Quite Before she died. She she burnt an awful lot of papers, but she also produced this very edited story of her life, which she described as being novelistic because she said the past is always a novel. Mm. You know, memory always novelises experience. And so, as Stig said, as she was, um, as she was a frail, um, frail elderly lady, she sat and um, dictated her story to um, to this to this young girl called Christina Douglas, who was um, who was her now deceased husband's illegitimate child born of a slave woman. So she was a mixed race girl who Anne Bernard had never heard of until her husband died. And a letter came from South Africa. They spent years in South Africa saying, you know, your husband had a daughter. And she said, well, I haven't got any children, so send her over here and I'll see what I can do for her. Well, that's rather... I mean, and what sort of relationship did she have with her husband? Because we've, we've sort of moved around a little bit. So she, she, she plays the field, if we can call it that way, as a, as a young woman. She marries at 43, wouldn't yes. you say? She marries in her 40s. Yes. And did she find happiness? I mean, is this a story that, that kind of has a happy ending or is it one where that, that sort of unconventional, slightly loveless background that she came up from never really leaves her? I think it's, it finds a peaceful ending. I'm not quite sure about um, about the happiness she found with her husband, who seems to have been a bit of a lightweight, to be honest, but she found a great deal of happiness in being in South Africa with him. But he was 16 years younger than her. I mean, it is interesting, and everyone was shocked by the fact that she turned down 11 very eligible suitors and then decided to marry this kind of, you know, this sort of, this fairly unexciting son of the Bishop of Limerick. You know, and he liked her very much, but everyone liked her very much, but she decided that this was this was the man she wanted to be with, and she was like a mother to him and he called her nanny Ooh. and he talked about their <laughs> home so, as kind of like creepy, isn't it? cuddle cottage oh, dear. <laughs> oh my god okay, i think we need to end it there it's getting cuddle, out of cuddle, cuddle. well listen, we there, but, uh, do you think these memoirs need to be i mean this sounds like a fascinating life and you've told it very well both here and in in, in the piece do you think the memoirs should find a publisher because she said i mean she's not an important figure necessarily historically but it, yeah. it, it's just it's like you say you've read an awful lot of these type of biographies and this seems to have struck a chord with you oh i think that uh, the memoirs should definitely find a publisher, not least because I mean, the years she spent, her life was split in half. Half of it was in Regency drawing rooms and the other half was in the Cape of Good Hope, the interior of the Cape of Good Hope. She had this extraordinary time in South Africa and that's where she really came into her own. The other thing that should be published is her art. She was an incredibly good um, watercolourist. And there aren't enough pictures in the book, but you can find them online. She really was exquisite, extraordinarily gifted. Let's have an exhibition. Yeah, what an an extraordinary woman. Frances Wilson, thank you so much for for joining us and and thank you for doing the review. Thank Thank you. Darest thou die, the sense of death is most in apprehension, and the poor beetle that we tread upon in corporeal sufferance feels a pang as great as when a giant dies. In case you missed it, this year has been the anniversary of the death of the world's greatest ever writer, and death is, of course, never far away from the plays of Shakespeare themselves. I've just watched two productions of King Lear, and one cannot help but notice, among other things, the cluttered carnage of all those on-stage corpses. The Globe Theatre has been running a conference entitled Culture of mortality, death on the Shakespearean stage. And we sent the doctor, Michael Keynes, the TLS's resident Shakespearean, and himself a figure of rather ghostly impermanence. You never know if he's going to materialise in the office or not, for example, to see what could be learned from this conference. And Michael spoke to Dr Farah Karim Cooper, the head of research at The Globe, and asked her about the difference between views of death in Shakespeare's time and our own. I mean, one of the reasons I, I wanted 
to do this conference, obviously we're spending this year commemorating Shakespeare and we're talking about it as commemoration. And there seems to be a kind of almost whitewashing of, of the, the reality of death that we do in our culture anyway, because it's a very difficult topic and it's not taboo, obviously, but it is something that people find difficult to talk about. And I'm always, I've always been struck by how in the early modern period, people are very open and very, uh, they have to talk about death. The presence of death is it's much more looming, I suppose, in early modern culture than perhaps it is now, where we sort of pathologize it and medicalize it. Um, so I'm really interested in how we've been talking about Shakespeare as uh, Shakespeare's death anniversary is more of a kind of commemoration of his work. It's as if Shakespeare never died, really. Um, so I wanted to do a conference where, at the end of this year, we got the people in the room who've written the most about it to come together and actually say as much as they can about the topic of death. And what has been emerging in the conference is that in the early modern period, they were very at ease with talking about it, even though there was still very much an anxiety about mortality and immortality. Um, but they were at ease with talking about it. And uh, Scott Newstock, for example, yesterday was talking about uh, this sort of discourse about the craft of dying and, mm -hmm. and how it becomes a kind of skill almost. And there are uh, lots of treatises that tell you how you can die better. With Shakespeare, I think what's fascinating is how he... You know, there are, he, he's not the most gruesome of playwrights. You know, of course, we have Titus Andronicus, but there's a lot of death in Shakespeare, and, and, and some of it is off stage. And uh, there are other playwrights that are much more gruesome. And he has a, a really unique capacity to get you meditating, thinking about death, and um, I suppose reflecting on it um, through the language, the way it's woven into the work, um, and through some of these objects, the representation of death. It, he creates a kind of iconography through his plays of death, and I think that's kind of what we've been hearing a little bit about today. This has been such an odd year for people learning again about collective public mourning, yes, particular figures. Yeah, and I wonder whether that's going to that's going to remain a question for, for us now. Some figures take on an iconicity, don't they, uh, in the way Shakespeare has had for 400 years. I mean, in the U.S., in Memphis, um, people still go and they leave flowers for Elvis, who died in the 1970s, you know, uh, and they, you know, think about him um, as a very live, present figure, but he's very much dead. And in fact, as you know, there was all those conspiracy theories about Elvis actually isn't dead. I <laughs> <laughs> wonder whether that's a kind of throwback to these ideas. We've heard a lot about people kind of on stage popping up yes and how statistically if a coffin comes on with a corpse in it it's more likely they're going to pop up and say it's all right I'm yes alive. and am i right to thinking this continues tomorrow the workshops that you're holding as part absolutely of yes so we have one more day for the conference and we are doing a workshop uh because most of the conferences that we have here we don't want them to just uh host academic papers but also to just do a little bit of um, experimentation as well with some of this material uh, so we have a couple of scenes. It's being led by uh, uh, one of our directors here named Nick Hutchison, uh, looking at what it might be like, uh, what is the experience of spectating death? Um, is death uh, something that can be a shared experience, death as a public act? And that's what we're that's a, sort of what I'm interested in, is one of the reasons I wanted to do this conference. So we're looking at a scene from the Spanish tragedy where Pedragano thinks that he's going to survive because somebody's got this box with a pardon in it and he's, he's uh, on the execution block and actually the whole time he thinks that he's not going to die and he thinks it's a big theatrical game and he's just playing along uh, and then he does die. And it, you know, it has this incredibly macabre humor to it. It's an extraordinary moment. And so we want to look at what, uh, what spectatorship means in a moment like that. Um, and the, 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 the have being, I suppose, aware as an audience that, that he is going to die. Mm -hmm. And then we're also going to juxtapose that with uh, the Duchess of Malfi's um, death. And the reason why that's an important one is because it very much plays into the philosophy of the period about dying well and uh, holding on to um, your identity in that moment of dying. And uh, uh, the craft of dying is something that she has, um, I suppose, um, cultivated beautifully. Uh, she follows almost a kind of Montanian I suppose, pathway to her death. Montaigne talks about um, 
don't worry about the fact that you have projects that are not finished. Just accept your death. Be ready for it. Be prepared. Be familiar with it. Uh, and she kind of stage manages her death as well. You know, she takes control of it in that moment. So we're really interested in that. And it also evokes huge amounts of sympathy and pathos for her character. So um, what is the experience of, of that? How is her death a shared experience? Mm. So those are the questions we're going to be looking at. Michael, first of all, do you want to do you want to challenge my characterization of you as a figure of ghostly impermanence? I'm happy with that, and I'm happy with being the Doctor. Yeah, they'll do nicely. <laughs> I want the Doctor to become a thing because I'm, I actually think of you as the Doctor. Well, I'm very. I think of myself that way too. It's just I didn't tell anyone. Until no, now, so. no. Well, you're, don't you're, want to brag about it. No, exactly. I know, I know. But you're, you're, you, you've, you've outed me as the Doctor. That's, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> right. Let's uh, talk about. I suppose the death in our culture versus Shakespeare's culture is one of the things this conference is about. We had a podcast right at the beginning, I think it was there, wasn't it, with Thomas Meany mm. about the sterilisation of death in the modern world. Do you think there are connections with our view of death in Shakespeare's time or are the differences rather more marked? Well, I remember that episode and that, that review. It was a great review by Thomas Meany, wasn't it? And there's an interesting parallel, I think, at this conference called Cultures and Mortality. Somebody mentioned a book by another TLS contributor called Margreta de Grazia. Thea, I'm really sorry if that's, that's wrong. That's great. That's all right. Yeah. right. I yeah. should have just gone on. Yeah. Anyway, she wrote a book called Hamlet Without Hamlet, which is how I think about around the time of the Romantics, people started to talk about Hamlet and how he hesitated and how he paused. And you get a different character then. That's a different Hamlet from the one who maybe belonged to the 17th and the 18th century. So we both we both have a different Hamlet. If this reading is acceptable, you know, we don't all have to agree with this, but the idea is we have a different Hamlet. There's a break between a modern version, who's very interesting and introverted and hesitates to kill uh, Claudius, yeah. and the old one, whose concerns are very different. And there's also continuity, because, of course, we can go on performing the plays, we can go on reading the plays, the words are still you know, legible to us. So there's continuity and there's maybe be a question mark about difference and I wonder if there's something analogous going on when it comes to thinking about cultures of mortality Thomas Meany wrote about modern the modern sort of sterilized version in which you can have ashes FedExed to you in which you never need to deal with anyone you can do everything with a credit card and that seems very medicalized and very distant you know and, and very you know away from the grotty business of actually dealing with human bodies and corpses but at the same time, we still we are still the same creatures who need to bury our dead, aren't we? And we still need to deal somehow That's with remains. As you were talking about Thomas Meany's review there, it wasn't even so much the sterilisation of it that struck me, but the fact of it being hidden away. Whereas in certainly in Shakespeare's plays and on, on the Elizabethan and Jacobean stage in general, death was everywhere. You were confronted with it in its various forms and there was this notion of, of a good death, which we, we don't have so much now. I suppose that's tr that's true, isn't it? Is that we don't? Um, he used a phrase about living with the dead, didn't we? We don't have them so much present in our in our houses. Whereas, you know, obviously on the Shakespearean stage, we you know we, corpses are absolutely everywhere, whether it's a battlefield or it's just one brought in in a coffin. And I, I wonder if religion is the difference here, because I presume it's a fascinating thing you're talking about Hamlet there just then. Is the is the is the seventeenth century Hamlet about notions of just vengeance? You know, vengeance is mine. Uh, I must repay, saith the Lord. So is he acting in a proper context religiously? You know, his father's coming up out of purgatory. The context of how and when he should take a life and how life and death works is one that's, that has a religious meaning attached to it. Whereas the 18th century, the Romantic discovery is effectively the first beginnings where we look at ourselves as individuals, uh, human agency rather than divine agency. Is that the split that, that's talked about? In, in I, I think that's an absolutely crucial one. I mean, because we, I mean, I don't suppose people use the phrase a secular. Shakespeare, but it feels like that's the key difference, is that Christi you, you live in Christendom uh, if, if you're Shakespeare's contemporary, and the idea of mortality and the idea of what lies beyond that is entirely shaped by a religious worldview, isn't it? Even if you, even if you are such a thing, I mean, it's virtually impossible, but even if you were in some way a non-believer, you, you're surrounded by people who have the opposing point of view. It's very different, isn't it, I suppose? Um, uh, but, of course, scholars go round and round this question of, not just Hamlet, but this question of vengeance and, and the afterlife and its place in the plays. There, there was a great scholar called Michael O'Neill who spoke at the conference. I, I just quick bit of quotation yeah, from something he said about this, because he's talking about this as as, as drama after the Reformation. So after we have this great split between the Church of 
uh, split from the Church of Rome. And of course, this is the world that Shakespeare writes in. So Michael O'Neill writes, amongst the Reformation's most traumatic consequences was the complete transformation in the relationship between the living and the dead that resulted from the abolition of purgatory and with it the whole associated industry of intercession for the souls of the departed. Alexander died, Alexander was buried, Alexander returneth into dust, declares Hamlet, meditating on the shameful degradation of death. Of course, the opening of Hamlet's tragedy introduces us to a ghost who professes to come from purgatory, and Hamlet is half persuaded that this is indeed his father's spirit in arms, but he remains enough of a Wittenberg Lutheran to speak of death as the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns. So I think there we're seeing an idea, Professor Neil's idea, but I think it's quite widespread, the idea that Hamlet is actually a place where these things meet in conflict, and it creates great drama. And that moment in when, when he picks up Yorick's skull and he, you know the quintessence of dust, effectively we're, say, we're seeing a very modern view that um, your body, once, once you're dead, disintegrates in a sort of very carnal very sort of fleshy way into the earth that is a very modern perspective to have taken set against this strange purgatorial world which feels like it's it's from it's from an earlier period where purgatory was a thing i mean at that moment in the play is incredible isn't it because we get that we get the skull and we get this kind of quite you know earthy obviously kind of uh, disquisition on just remains really and then we get a botched funeral yeah. Again, this came up in in the conference that Ophelia dies off stage, doesn't she? But she actually has a last appearance on stage when she's brought back in in a coffin. And somebody made a great point uh, during during the conference about how you can a coffin's quite an unwieldy prop, and obviously it takes a lot of people to carry it if it has a body in it. And often they're brought on without bodies. But in Ophelia's case, she, she's quite likely to be in it, so that Laertes and Hamlet can jump in and kind of argue over her and you you know you often see her lying there she's not doing anything you know but she's there in various productions or there's some standing you know there's kind of wrapped up kind of everything that he puts on stage that's to do with um, funerals and obsequies and and mourning rites it's all got some some extra dramatic purpose i mean another good example was much ado about nothing came up and somebody talked about the, the song that's sung over hero and I think I'm right, I might, I might have the wrong text. Here we go. I think it's the folio. Uh, but in certainly in one version, Claudio doesn't sing the song himself. There are productions where he comes in and he's, he's a sort, he's sort of heartbroken lover and he sings this song for her, pardon goddess of the night. But I think in, originally it's someone else who sings, sings the song for him. So dramatically it's a really interesting moment because, of course, he woos Hero by proxy. Yeah. So now he's mourning her by proxy. Yeah, so is he more like Bertram? Should he not be? He's, he's not a romantic figure at all, as he, yeah. you know, sort of striding around in Kenneth Branagh's film and sort of Tuscan culture. He's not at all. He's a, maybe we should play him as a, as a sort of cold figure who's a, just making this match for advantage. That's it. We, we have to talk about something else um, because we could talk about, I think, Shakespeare and death potentially forever because it's such a rich topic but in this paper this week we've got reviews of Donmar productions of three Shakespearean plays The Tempest Henry IV and Julius Caesar and the notable thing Michael about these is that it's played by all women casts and I think The Tempest is the new one and they've basically rerun their previous one which is Henry IV and, and Julius Caesar I think The Tempest is about to transfer to New York is it? So I think that might be something to do with the planning. Mike, what, what do we make of this? What's the purpose of it, do you, do you think? Well, first of all, I think we have... Uh, I'm really pleased we get Lucy Munro from King's College London to do this. She reviewed a book for me a long time ago called Women as Hamlet. So she has some form on writing about this subject, and we've had Catherine Duncan-Jones writing about all-female casts in the past. So it's not completely unprecedented, but this is a really interesting experiment because it's three plays. We're talking about Julius Caesar and The Tempest and Henry IV, and they're bound together by a kind of framing conceit of having it all set in a prison. You're introduced to the prisoners, they are playing the parts within these Shakespeare plays, but of course they are all women. And for me, there's two really simple, obvious reasons to try an experiment like this. For an audience, you're seeing the play in a new light, and I think you're potentially, therefore, seeing something about life, seeing something about experience in a new way. And practically... For women, you are being op- given the opportunity to play parts that you'll never otherwise get. It's Harriet Walter has written a book to um, accompany these productions, and she's written about this. She's in this extraordinary experience of just, and it just re- shows you how limited the range of female parts in Shakespeare are. That's Brutus and other heroines, which is a lovely title. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is very good, isn't it? Yeah. What, what do you make of this? Is this because there'll be some 
traditionalists who say this is just classic this is the classic gimmickry of how Shakespeare is produced these days there's always got to be something and on this occasion this something is let's make everyone in the play women yeah in the same way that when you reviewed um, Glenda Jackson's Lear recently your evaluation of that role wasn't predicated on her gender no, it wasn't good because she was a woman it wasn't bad because she and they was made a woman. nothing of the fact they that made she was nothing a woman of the fact so the... I think in a sense this trilogy being acted by an all-woman cast that's a cast of actors yeah so to me it's 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 similar to you Michael you know you, you've Michael's just written this list of of um, you know the, the women in a, you know women novelists you must read and the publisher and other stories made the promise uh, last year I think it was in 2018 they'll publish only books by women. I think these things are, they're sort of necessary instances of making up for lost time, redressing the balance and attempts to normalise things that, that should be normal, you know, literally making it okay for us to consider women quite literally on, on the scene. So I think we just need to move, you know, and, and consider the, the framing device, the, the fact that these three plays are all set in, in a prison and the fact that you've got these multiple layers of acting. You've got the, the actor playing an inmate, playing a Shakespearean character. For me, that is more interesting and we need to move beyond the, the question of what gender they are. Yeah, and I think the defamiliarisation point is interesting because mm. Shakespeare is very familiar and it's sometimes over-familiar. I, I saw Midsummer Night's Dream earlier this year and they changed Helena to Helenus and therefore the relationship was a gay one. Now, actually, the, the text really worked well for that, but it made you look at ideas of love and, uh, and pride in love and, and identity in love in a different way. Now, is that what Shakespeare intended? No, but the, the text is rich enough to support it, and I, think, I like the idea of that sort of looking at it in a different way, defamiliarising a text. So even there's a sort of gender politics reason, which is mm. a good one and a healthful one, I think, but there's just something nice about looking something slant, isn't mm. there, do you think? Absolutely, I agree. I agree with that, and that, that for me is part of it. That's the freshness, and also when we're dealing with the theatre, you know, there will be another production around the corner that will be the exact opposite of the one you've just seen. It's okay. The first comedy of errors I saw was set on a checkerboard at the <laughs> RSC, and everyone was in incredibly bright colours. It didn't stop me seeing one that was, was it good? imperial costume yeah <laughs> do you know i had to think for a second well, I, but i think it was I, I str- I str- I str- it's one of those plays that i've read rather than seen right it's, it's, right it's, so it's not an, it's not the most it's, it's not an easy read i don't think the comedy of it i think it plays better i think because yeah. it's a farce it's about the pace it's a roman it, comedy isn't it really? exactly yeah yeah it's a roman comedy. effectively michael we'll have to leave it there thank you so much uh, for attending the conference uh, for us and uh, for talking to us about shakespeare i think this i know it's the year we should be talking about shakespeare it feels that there's always plenty to talk about when we start talking about Shakespeare. So thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Talking as we have of death, it's sadly fitting that we move on to Mexico. As Scott Esposito says in his review of a range of Mexican cultural artefacts, Mexico is one of the most blessed nations on earth. It's resource-rich with a mature democracy and an attractive climate. However, it is also the fearful home of drug cartels, endemic corruption, the murder of journalists and, and often sinister uber-violence. 150,000 Mexicans have died as a result of drug-related violence since 2006. Many thousands more have disappeared. Scott has reviewed for the TLS this week three things, a collection of journalism called The Sorrows of Mexico, the novel Norte by the Bolivian Edmundo Paz Soldan, translated by Valerie Miles, and a collaboration between landscape photographer Richard Misrak and Mexican musician Guillermo Galindo called Border Cantos. Taken together, they paint a bleak picture of a country in the grip of a crisis of non-governance and violence. Uh, Scott joins Thea and me now. Hi, Scott. Hi. Let's start with the journalism. It's the sorrows of, of Mexico. What sorrows particularly, I suppose, stood out for you? What's, what's, the, what's the unifying message of, of the book? Oh, God. I mean, you kind of have an embarrassment of riches, unfortunately, in terms of things to be sorrowful over. Um, there is, of course, a lot of violence happening with the drug war right now. The, uh, the murders and the disappeared, as you mentioned. There were 43 students who have disappeared and likely been killed by um, agents related to the government of Mexico. There is uh, endemic prostitution that's written up in the book. There is violence against journalists. Um, just a lot of things that are making people feel very uncomfortable and very uh, sad right now. How, how does this balance, Scott, between, you know, what is a, a, you know, as you say, it's a mature democracy, it's a tourist destination, and yet you have journalists being tortured by the state, the suggestion, as you say, of students being murdered with the complicity of the state. How do those two things in any way marry together? You know, I mean, that's that's a really good question. Mexico is a country that I spent quite a bit of time in. And I have to say, as someone who's lived there for over a year and visited lots and lots of parts of it, I love that country. It's beautiful. The people of Mexico are some of the most welcoming that I've ever encountered in the world. So, I mean, you do have this one side where it's this great place of tourists. I know lots of people who've been there recently and have no problems. And on the other side, there's um, a lot of things that are happening that may be a little out of sight of the tourist industry, but are definitely endemic problems and probably are things that are very concerned to people who call Mexico their home. The, um, the journalist uh, Juan Villoro, who you, you review, and he's in that journalism collection that you review, he traces much of the modern discontent and disruption back to things like fraudulent land redistribution and wider changes and failures that were set in motion by the Mexican Revolution in the early 1900s, doesn't he? I mean, he, he suggests some striking connections between what's happening now and what happened then. Definitely. And... I mean, you have to go back to the very, very beginning of the uh, modern Mexican democracy to really see that there are some deeply rooted problems here. What you're talking about is um, so there there was a resolution. There was a strong man in power before the uh, democratic order came to power. And really what happened with the resolution was a lot of peasants, a lot of undereducated, impoverished people did put their lives at risk and lost their lives in a lot of cases. And you had kind of an aristocratic order that managed to reap the benefits and take control of the government. And part of that land redistribution, that was to be one of the payoffs for all the people who fought and lost their lives in the revolution. But there's always been a lot of suspicion that that redistribution wasn't actually as good as the government would have it. And this has been a sore thing. It's definitely been a, uh, a fault line in Mexican politics ever since. And, and of course, you also have to keep in mind that the ruling power that did do that redistribution and that was able to come into power after the revolution remained in power for over 70 years as virtually the sole political party in this state that was calling itself a democracy and holding regular elections according to the constitutional schedule. You see, you just talked about the historical background. Uh, what would happen if drugs were widely decriminalised to the state of Mexico? Are we? Is it as straightforward as that, that a lot of the current violence is connected to the fact that drugs are illegal, they're smuggled across the US border and uh, presumably around the world as well, and that 
creates cash and power for the cartels. What would happen if drugs were decriminalised? Is that an answer to how you would reduce the endemic violence in the country? I mean, that's that's a very difficult question. I think definitely a lot of Mexicans, either citizens or politicians, would not support a decriminalization. Definitely one of the things that I heard when I was in Mexico was that really the problem was that the United States produced a big, big demand for these drugs. And in terms of the Mexicans, it wasn't seen as something that they really thought was an okay thing to do in terms of using drugs or buying or selling drugs. So I don't know how decriminalization would go over. Uh, I think part of the problem is that these cartels are so big and so powerful and have infiltrated so many levels of power in Mexico that a decriminalization may not change a whole lot in terms of you know who's really pulling the wheels here and the methods they're using to achieve dominance over one another. Let's talk a bit about the violence being sort of transmogrified into art because um, you mentioned Roberto Bolano's 2,666 and um, I remember reading that and it's something exceptional telling the stories of the murders of the women in Ciudad Juarez. Um, What's Norte like? What's that as a, uh, a book like? What does that do with, the, with the, the issues around Mexico? Sure. So Norte is a fairly compact novel of maybe about 300 or so pages, but it covers a lot of terrain. The, there's three different storylines in this, and the main one occupies this character named Jesus, who's modeled off a real-life figure named the Railway Killer, who was a Mexican migrant who haunted the borderlands in the 1990s and murdered a number of women. So that's that's kind of the main story of the book, is this person coming out of Ciudad Juarez, traveling around the borderlands, getting stuck in some American prisons, and kind of learning this whole uh, nihilistic philosophy from some people that he encounters in jail, and then really going on these rampages throughout... Um, kind of the Texas-Mexico border. There are also two other plot lines of this book. There's one set largely in the 30s and 40s and involves a naive Mexican artist who kind of gets swallowed up in the American Southwest, again, modeled off a real-life figure. And then there's a much more contemporary strand of this book, maybe set around 2010 or so, uh, involving some academics who are discussing and researching Latin American literature. And actually, Bolaño does come up a little bit in that context. And as you say, I mean, through through this book, the push and pull of the border is is a, a prevalent theme. And that's something which gets extensive and quite startling treatment in, um, in Border Cantos, which is the collaboration between a photographer and a musician that you also discuss. So what is how do they portray this kind of this heavily trodden space? Right, right. I mean, I guess the great thing about those is how much they kind of leave open to you. Uh, I think that Richard Mizrach is a great, great photographer, and his images are always feel very powerful to me when I see them. Um, but I always feel like they're, they're very ambiguous images as well. I think in the review, I use the word ironic, um, just because, you know, you, you get a lot of conflicting messages in these images. So... So I, I don't really know so much that, that he interprets the land as just kind of presents what he's seeing to you. Uh, in terms of Galindo, the, the musician, he said an interesting thing when I happened to see him during a bookstore event. He said that he wanted to determine the sounds that these objects that he finds and makes into musical instruments um, would produce. So he, he doesn't use violins and pianos. He'll go find human vertebrae or spent shell casings and he'll turn them into musical instruments. And he's really about discovering what kind of properties these objects have and what kind of sounds they were meant to make or that, you know, that they, they can teach him to produce. I think we, we have a snippet of that, actually. So let's let's play that now. That's quite that's quite weird sounding stuff. And, and taking with the photography, how does that work? Is it because I've I've seen a couple of the images? They're quite haunting and sort of desolate images. Are taken together, is it quite a sort of desolate experience? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think one of the words I use a lot with Mizrach would be post-apocalyptic, and you you do get a feeling of just these landscapes, either by the forces of nature 
or by the forces of politics that have kind of created these uh, these no man's lands. And I think I think Galindo's music is very, very evocative of that kind of sensibility. Scott, well, thank you so much uh, for joining us now. And thank you for this uh, review. It's three very different approaches uh, to the subject, but it's, it, it's great to speak to you about them. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Pleasure. Scott. Bye. Have you Bye. been to Mexico? Yes, I went last year. And what was it like? What was your... Um, how, how touristy is it versus... Because if you look at the 150,000 Mexicans dead of drug-related yeah. violence since 2006, mm. how obvious is that? To the tourists, not very, but I suppose actually that's not true. It structures the way that you that you move to... I went to uh, Mexico City and spent a, a fair amount of time there living with some friends, so living in a residential area. Coyoacan, which is this lovely kind of colonial it's where Frida Kahlo and all of all of that set lived and you know even then people were saying oh well you know if you were going to rent a car say and drive from there and head north they'd say don't don't do that don't drive as the sun sets you know you're very aware of of knowing the limits of your of your movement but then you know we went to Oaxaca and Tulum places like that are completely fine for tourists it's just the same as you have in some places in the US, just certain roads you maybe wouldn't wouldn't walk down. But it is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. You know, it I, I- is absolutely extraordinary. It is. It's devastating. It's like Italy on acid. It's a whole other level of, of systemic corruption and violence. And, and Uber. I mean, I was reading a book about it, and it struck me that you know we we sort of you talk about sort of ISIS levels of you know of violence of the really brutal, it's a mm. horrible brutality. And yet that happens semi-regularly in Mexico and in this country almost without, you know, people are beheaded and their heads placed in public to say you are a traitor, you've, you've done something wrong to one of the mm. cartels. That happens continually, it seems, from, from mm. stuff like And what's, what's even stranger, perhaps, is that things like that happen, like what the, the uh, incident, if I can call it that, that's a terrible word for it, that um, the massacre that Scott referred to of 43 students who were disappeared and, you know, their remains were found and then, oh, it wasn't their remains and whatever. But 43 students who were peacefully protesting were massacred and it was traced back to the administration and you know there are there are brief moments when uh, the international scene wakes up to this and and uh, david uh, huerta wrote a poem that was translated uh, that went viral um, about this event and then it sort of disappears it it, tri- it, it goes quiet again Th- there's a lot of work being done by exceptional Mexican writers to work with and against the tendency to sort of focus on the violence and you know there's this whole genre of narco literature and you can go and go on these narco tours there's narco tourism and excellent writers like Valeria Luiselli and Laia Dufresa and Yuri Herrera all of these people engage with Mexico in a way that isn't glorifying that violence and isn't necessarily directly tackling Mexican issues in inverted commas. They're coming at it often in more oblique, yeah. human, personal ways. And that is a source of optimism and it's it's very important, obviously, because they're drawing attention to their country in, in ways that are more immediately engaging than sort of literature that you might consume as you would just a, a drug thriller or whatever. Yeah, and there are, I mean, and that's exactly right. Um, there are drug thrillers that do it that treat it, they treat it very well. But I was thinking of Don Winslow's uh, Cartel. It, it's very, I think it's very well done as a genre novel. But it treats it. It's, it's like a film. It treats mm. it as sort of filmically as mm. here is a series of very violent incidents that, mm. that tie together mm. in a narrative. But they don't do anything more than that. It adds to the same kind of marketing, packaging tendencies that you know Italy has with the mafia. Yeah. Um, it, it becomes something that's very exportable and very easily categorizable. But it does a massive injustice, obviously, to the country that it that it comes from. How interesting. And the parallels, very interesting parallels between Italy and Mexico, as you said. And that's almost all we have time for this week. Before we listen to the poems of Barbara Everett, Thea and I must thank Francis Wilson, the Dr. Michael Keynes and Scott Esposito. Please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other cultural subjects. We've got two more, I think, this year. Before Christmas. Before Christmas. And then we'll play some 
we've recorded some stuff at some live events that we will we will turn into podcasts but we've got two more yes, main to tidy over until the new year <laughs> uh, this week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we've been discussing plus Ari Kelman on black abolitionism Kate Chisholm on Samuel Johnson's laziness Libby Purvis on the bracing world of girls boarding schools where people had nicknames this is from the review like Bouncy Bam Bam <laughs> Kipper Moo Pussy Turnip and Wopsy actually made me laugh out loud reading <laughs> that it's very Beatrix Potter <laughs> yeah oh, that's a lovely isn't that, isn't that charming way of putting it uh, and our own Toby Lichtig on the latest Adam Curtis documentary you can visit our website the-tls.co.uk to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers Thea mentioned Michael writing about 60 books by women you should read uh, we've got Professor Rafia Zafar on early African American literature Keith Miller on the Design Museum and 20 questions with Eamon McBride, much beloved of our fiction editor, Toby Lichtig, <laughs> uh, who apparently hates Dickens. Another one. Another one. Who, uh, Hilary, Hilary Ma- Mantel. Yeah, I love Dickens. <laughs> but what do I know? Eamon <laughs> McBride does not love Dickens. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter, do like us on Facebook, and please do review us on iTunes. Uh, to end the show, we shall hear some new poetry from the critic Barbara Everett, one of the most important voices in criticism certainly of poetry, in the post-war era. She hasn't published any poetry since she was a very young woman, so these are a real treat. Barbara is going to read them out for us herself. So until next week, when we'll do more of the same, only a little bit different from Thea and from me, goodbye. Workmen, both yellow-macked, they crouch, peering into a hole in the ground, like great scientists focused on outer space or friends at a peaceful deathbed. Storm. They track the place of the storm by counting seconds, lightning to thunder, and house their God in just such a wide darkness from this fear to that need. Widow, one. As ghosts obscurely trail the past, she is posthumous. She haunts the future. Two. Late in the night, the lit house she comes back to is empty, echoing. Partners, Seeking answers, she plunged, and finding the water lethally cold, drowned. Wiser, luckier, he skated on thin ice, always upright, in motion. Passerby. The bull terrier cross, cheek pouched, rocks along blissfully to the parks, where running, leaping, fetching will take place, and then back home together, the elderly tennis ball gripped like treasure, like love, like a good dream. Alzheimer's. One. He walked the streets by night, and when retrieved, asked the way back to Warsaw. Two, the loved dog saw no difference, or at least chose not to speak of it. Snails. The world was sometimes so empty, the slow grace of snails stealing breadcrumbs from the paving stones outside in early morning was almost welcome. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.